Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Greg Marshallden, and today I'm going to talk to John Dirks about the history of the triangular relationship between Cuba, Canada, and the United States. John M. Dirks is a historian who's also worked for many years as a professional archivist. After he finished his doctorate at the University of Toronto, he lectured for several years in the International Relations Program at Trinity College, which is located at the U of T. Currently, he is an archivist with the City of Toronto. His book, A Cooperative Disagreement, Canada-United States Relations and Revolutionary Cuba, 1959 to 1993, was published by UBC Press in 2022. This book is part of the C.D. Howe series in Canadian political history that is edited by Robert Bothwell and John English. John, I want to welcome you to Witness to Yesterday. Well, Greg, thank you very much for having me and thank you and thank the Champlain Society for your interest in my work. This book grew out of your PhD thesis that was actually supervised by Bob Bothwell. What I'm interested in is why did you choose this particular topic? What drew you to it? Well, interestingly, when I was doing my master's in information studies, which was my second master's degree, it was you know, to improve my archival professional qualifications, I took a graduate history course, Professor Bothwell's Canadian Foreign Relations Seminar, as part of it, because I thought as an archivist, I still believe that uh, historical training is important, and I thought that it would be a good opportunity for me to actually have to use archives as part of an essay. It was one of the number of topics on the list that look assessed Canada's relations with Cuba. So I wrote a paper on it. I did very well. And then one of the things that I really noticed in the literature was that there really, you know, the United States was like the perpetual elephant in the room. And it was, everyone's always talking about the United States as the reference point for how Canada's policy with Cuba was similar or different. And yet nobody had really unpacked in any kind of detailed and comprehensive way um, to what, how the Canada-U.S. relationship was affected by the, by the policy difference. People had written about Canada and Cuba. Later on, a few years after that course, there was the biography of Trudeau and about his trip to Cuba written by Robert Wright. But this space I found a, a, as a gap, so I, I uh, decided I would pursue it. I had long been interested kind of in the topic anyway. As a kid, I remember, I remember when Trudeau went to Havana. I was like 12 years old. We had it in current events class, and there was a sense that this was important. And then when I was an undergraduate and the politics of Central America, the Cold War were very much front and center in the early 1980s. Cuba was always, again, a player in this conversation. So my interests go back to that time period. And then I just sort of uh, continued to read about it. And uh, so I took the opportunity to write and research uh, when it availed itself to me. Well, as your book makes abundantly clear, Canada staked out a different relationship with Cuba than the United States. 
But it also appears, based upon what you've written, that Canada's position really irritated, if not upset, both Cuba and the United States at times. Why was this? Well, the easier question, of course, is the United States. I mean, I think there was very much a sense that Canada was, you know, its next door neighbor. It was a Western Hemisphere country. It was its, one of its closest allies. It was in NATO. Canada was expected to sort of toe the line on the Cold War in particular. And for the most part, we had been. So uh, I think there was a lot of you know, I think confusion and irritation in in Washington for why we were questioning its policy when Cuba, of course, had been much more of an issue for the United States. You know, they saw it as part of its backyard. They had a much longer history. They expected Canada to understand it. In fact, Canada's policy wasn't really any different than a lot of our other NATO allies and partners. I mean, the UK continued to trade with Cuba and kept an embassy open. Uh, France, I mean, a good part of Europe did as well. So our policy wasn't that different. But because we were in North America, because we were in the hemisphere, I think we were ex- more, more was expected of us than this. And I think it was also because Canada often expected some exceptionalism and uh, con- special consideration from the Americans. So there was a sense that this should be part of the quid pro quo. As far as the Cubans went, I think Cuba, after uh, after the revolution, and particularly after Castro began to tilt towards the Soviet Union, he very much still wanted a Western partner. I mean, a lot of Cuba's infrastructure was still based on Western technology. And uh, I think he, he still knew... He, Castro was smart enough as a revolutionary to know that they that it was good to have one uh, capitalist country in its in its camp, or at least uh, to engage with on a regular basis. That was not the United States, and so I think Cuba's frustration and disappointment was more when Canada, you know. When push came to shove on some key issues such as air transit rights or what kind of goods or services could be sold to Cuba, when push came to shove, if the Americans really challenged the Canadians, we tended to back off or we tended to invoke technicalities and other things like that to uh, uh, to uh, um, not engage the Cubans. So I think they didn't always feel we were we were operating in good faith. Now, before we get too far, I need to ask you about your primary sources for this book. It's a really solidly researched book, I must say, and clearly your archival training was of great benefit to you. Can you tell us what were the most useful sources and what were the challenges you faced with getting the Cuban perspective in all this? Well, I'll answer the latter part first. I mean, getting the Cuban perspective, and a lot of people could, you know, quite rightly criticized my work and that I did not attempt to access the Cuban archives. I mean, and that was primarily for three reasons. Uh, uh, Only a few Western scholars had gotten access and even then for very, very limited, uh, very, very limited sets of documents, uh, tightly controlled by the Cuban government. Most people who got access to were considered to be friendly to Havana. Uh, the other thing is just uh, you know finances and uh, you know Shirk did not fund my project, and uh, you know my my knowledge of Spanish was I could read it I could read it with the help of a dictionary but having having this been a later career project I just wasn't well enough versed in those uh, in Spanish to really be confident in doing detailed research there so I decided I'm telling primarily a Canadian U.S. story and that's what I was going to do. 
And, and so I accept all of the shortcomings in the book because of that. But um, getting back to the first part of the question, I think that um, you know there was an abundance of archives in both Canada and the United States which had not been accessed, or even if they were available, they hadn't been used. And so uh, the Department of then called External Affairs, now Global Affairs, its, its, its records, which were transferred to the Library and Archives en masse in the mid-1990s, uh, they were there for researching. I mean, it meant having to use the Access to Information Act a lot, but uh, with time and planning, uh, that was clearly the most critical source. Um, records from U.S. presidential libraries, some of them of which I was able to get because they were had, they had been microfilmed, I could get at the University of Toronto, other facilities I had to visit. They're obviously very important as well as were the archives of the U.S. Department of State. And for the domestic side, I do try to weave in some of the domestic currents on how you know uh, the Canada-U.S.-Cuba conversation uh, impacted uh, uh, such as the New Left, student groups, protests, uh, Quebec nationalism and the like. The uh, records from the uh, RCMP and CSIS, again, all of them of which I had to go through access to information to get, they turned out to be very important as well. Even if a lot of them were heavily redacted, they were still very useful. In the course of uh, all of this primary research you're digging, what surprised you the most? That's a tough question to ask because actually a lot of things surprised me. I mean, I think maybe first and foremost is that how, how many sort of routine areas of bilateral engagement between Canada and the U.S. Cuban issues came up with. Everything from export control to the monitoring of travel, civil aviation, um, intelligence sharing or sharing of diplomatic reports. I mean, there was just... Uh, and particularly in the mid-1960s, which I think was the high watermark of that, um, that, 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 uh, that struck me. Again, often it was on the mundane and the routine where the issues came up, and they tended to be uh, at times the most fractious. I think the other, one of the other big issues is that, uh, and I sort of suspected this anyway, but at no point does the record show, did Canadian policy ever try to undermine the U.S.? We weren't, yes, we wanted to have our own policy, but it was very, very clear that we wanted to be as helpful to the Americans as possible while still maintaining our own, uh, our own sovereignty and our own ability to call our own tune when we needed it. And, uh, and the record certainly made that clear. And there's lots of other exceptions as well. I found that... Uh, Yes, relationships with prime ministers and presidents were important, but more often than not, this Cuban-related issues were handled at the bureaucratic level with the diplomats and the senior policymakers in both Canada and the U.S. They knew each other. They were the same players even as, uh, as uh, occupants of the White House or 24 Sussex Drive changed. And so a lot, a lot of the real story took place there, and I think that's really important. And the other thing is that, you know, uh, the Cubans, much as they were critical of Canada, I did find there were a number of opportunities or incidences when they tended to push the envelope as well in terms of uh, what would have been considered uh, diplomatic niceties or proprieties, uh, particularly on aviation, on landing rights of sometimes military or other aircraft, which would not have been given normal uh, protection under treaties. Cuban diplomats trying to bypass the U.S. embargo by bringing 
more Canadian goods in their pouches. There are a lot of these kind of stories as well. So uh, lots, lots of little ways that trust could be built or lost, I found. In your analysis, uh, there's considerable discussion of the principal personalities, in particular the successive uh, prime ministers of Canada and the presidents of the United States. Walton Butterworth, President Kennedy's, as well as Lyndon B. Johnson's ambassador to Canada, he was a bit of a Cold War hawk. Now, he viewed the differences between Canada and the U.S. on Cuba as fundamental and long-standing. In other words, didn't matter what administration was around, these were deep differences and long-standing differences. Do you think he was right on this? This is one of the cases where I could say yes and no. I mean, certainly over time, you know, uh, and as I mentioned, I think in my previous answer, Canada and the U.S. regularly did bump heads on this. They fundamentally looked at the problem differently or at the situation. I mean, um, the Americans really saw it as a security threat. They really saw this as a, you know, a, a, a hemispheric and regional threat. Canadians were a little bit more circumspect. I mean, we saw this as... Uh, um, the outcome of years of, you know, inequality and injustice, but also one that could be exploited by the Soviet Union and others. So I think on, on that analysis, he was right. But where he wasn't right was that, you know, over time, you know, this never did lead to a serious rupture. If it was more fundamental, it would have led to a more serious, uh, more serious bilateral problem. You know, when uh, Richard Nixon and Pierre Trudeau were facing each other as prime minister and president, and Nixon, of course, was uh, strongly opposed to Castro. Trudeau was beginning to sort of move, you know, move towards greater engagement with Cuba and a whole other other communist countries. Washington's big concerns were about things like uh, Canada withdrawing or uh, reducing its NATO commitment and uh, trying to diversify its trade away from the U.S. These were the issues that were more sticking points, not Cuba. So, Yes, Butter, Butterworth was right in one sense, but the actual long-term impact, I would say, uh, he wasn't correct. Yeah, it's 2023, and it's hard for us today to conceive of how the Cuban Revolution so upset the apple cart in terms of the Cold War. I was wondering if you could just describe its impact and why the USA felt so threatened by the Cuban Revolution. Well, of course, I guess the entire Western Hemisphere... Uh, had been considered America's backyard or the U.S.'s backyard. Certainly since, definitely uh, since uh, the turn of the 20th century, uh, arguably even back to the, you know, the post-Civil War period. So this was always seen as their, their sphere of influence. And if you like, quite properly, I think one can properly talk about empire for the U.S. in that region, certainly between the 1890s and the 1930s. So this was suddenly a major challenge, you know, and it was so geographically close to the U.S. and all. I mean, it would have been like the equivalent, I guess, of, you know, uh, Poland or Hungary uh, turning very pro-Western uh, in, you know, at the height of the Cold War, you know, during the Iron Curtain period. It was seen as a real threat. It was seen as something that could have a cascading effect all through Latin America. And without question, I mean, there were a lot of, there were a lot of admirers of Castro in Latin America and then in other parts of the world as well, particularly Africa. So there was a real sense that not only was this an immediate security threat, but it could have a cascading effect of loss of American influence throughout uh, 
throughout the hemisphere and even throughout the global south. And Castro did like to actually portray himself as a leader of the global south. Uh, he kind of rose in stature there in the 60s and particularly into the 1970s. So all of these made it, uh, made this uh, uh, somebody that they were anxious to contain and uh, remove if possible. Right from the beginning, Prime Minister John G. Diefenbaker staked out a position on Cuba that differed from that of the United States, as you point out. Now, Diefenbaker was very much a progressive conservative in many areas, but when it came to the Cold War, he was very much anti-communist. Can you explain to us why his government chose to, in a sense, set out a different position than the United States, given that strong feeling of anti-communism within that administration? Well, I think Diefenbaker, and, and, and this becomes really more problematic during the Kennedy administration, but uh, you know, in 1959, when Castro takes over, both the U.S. and uh, Canada recognize the new regime within, within about a week of, uh, you know, of, of Castro's arrival in Havana at the beginning of January 59. So they started off in the same position. Canada's, and Diefenbaker wrote in his memoirs that... Um, he was following the traditional British approach to foreign policy. And, and of course, Diefenbaker was an incredibly strong Anglophile that uh, as long as a new regime um, had control of the country and was going to honor its basic international agreements, Canada would recognize it. Ironically, Pierre Trudeau uh, followed the same approach with the 1973 coup in Chile. So a coup on the right uh, Auto Canadian diplomats followed the same approach. We will deal, we may not like you, but we will deal with you. Whereas American policy always tended to be much more behavioral based and, uh, and a sense of, you know, using carrots and sticks, including sanctions and de-recognition of governments that would not toe the line. I mean, Canada was generally like the British against economic warfare and against, uh, you know, uh, against uh, pulling their embassies. So uh, Diefenbaker was just very traditional in that sense. And yes, he did lecture uh, country when he went to Asia in 1958. He did lecture leaders about communism, and he was very traditional in that sense. But I think this was partly out of the, the again that British tradition. And also, Diefenbaker was enough of a Canadian nationalist that he didn't want to be seen as pushed around by the Americans. He was a very proud man. Of course, he was very much tested, the Bay of Pigs fiasco and then the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Did the position change over that time? Not regarding relations with Cuba fundamentally, but there were moments when, um, when we did... Uh, we did pull back. Like I know, um, he had a, he had a very testy conversation with Ambassador Cruz from Cuba, the the uh, Cuban ambassador to Canada, right after the Bay of Pigs. Uh, you know, basically chiding him for taking the revolution in a communist direction, and more or less saying it's going to be difficult for us to continue supporting you politically, at least, uh, if you continue to go that way. Uh, with the missile crisis, uh, they did even some, you know, uh, I wouldn't say drastic measures, but again, there was a number of, you know, very, very tense conversations between Diefenbaker and between uh, External Affairs Minister Green and Ambassador Cruz about the recklessness of Cuba's position. And Cruz initially tried to argue that, you know, um, 
you know, that, uh, the, you know, the missiles weren't, were a lie. This is American propaganda until they confronted him directly with evidence. And then, you know, he, uh, Cruz sort of doubled back, dug in his heels and just said, well, we're not going to be pushed around by the Americans. So we did a few things. I mean, we, we provided naval escorts in the Caribbean. I mean, we were actually the only NATO country during the missile crisis to do that, even though the Americans thought we were a little bit wishy-washy at the beginning. We did stop... Um, a cargo aircraft. Uh, Canada used to allow cargo um, charter flights for uh, the transporting of non-lethal or non-military goods and services to Cuba uh, on a regular basis, and so we stopped doing. Uh, we stopped. We we disallowed a few of those during the missile crisis. So we did a few things, and certainly the relationship with Cuba became cooler and more formal. But again, at no time did we break relations, and at no time were we pressured to break relations. Either, either after the Bay of Pigs or after the missile crisis, and in fact, uh, we were we our role in intelligence gathering and other other things to help the Americans became more important after that time. I was struck by uh, your discussion of the so-called Fair Play for Cuba committee. Now, the parent version of it died out in the United States quite quickly, as you point out. This was due to the connection between the committee and Lee Harvey Oswald, Kennedy's assassin. But a Canadian version of the Fair Play for Cuba Committee continued on for many years and seemed to have some influence at times. Uh, why was that? Well, I think, I think part of it is because Canada did have a policy where people were still legally allowed to travel to Cuba. And, and the Fair Play, the, one of Fair Play's main... main um, operations at that time was to expose people to the Cuban revolution. I mean, yes, you had your hardcore Marxists and true believers in the revolution, but you also, you also had the curious, the intellectually curious, uh, you had, uh, um, journalists and the like, and uh, this organization kind of helped facilitate links between Cuba people-to-people links between Cuba and Canada. So our more moderate policy allowed for more space. I think this was also a time period when, particularly in the sort of uh, on the campuses and in intellectual circles, uh, you know, there was more um, critical thinking about American foreign policy. And so I think that this group was able to leverage that. In some parts of the country, like British Columbia, where fair play was very, very strong, there was also a very, very strong and very militant trade union movement, uh, some of, with, with some of them having communist leanings. And so uh, that was sort of fertile ground. Um, over time, though, the group kind of went from being a larger umbrella coalition of academics, authors, people like Farley Mowat and, uh, and uh, historian Kenneth McNaught and others to a more, you know, uh, a group driven by the League for Trotskyist Action, and it became increasingly a mouthpiece for the Cuban government in Canada. But it wasn't always that way. But yes, the group did continue on until 1972. So to some extent, the FLQ and other militants uh, seeking a kind of a revolution in Quebec were influenced by the Cuban Revolution. I was wondering if you could describe Canada-Cuba relations in the months before, during, and after the October crisis of 1970. And I'll, I'll preface my remarks by saying the October crisis is also something I remember as a child growing up in Montreal. I was in grade one, 
And uh, on our streets in Montreal was our member of parliament who was in the Trudeau cabinet, and there was a soldier in front of his house. So we we remember the fear on the streets at that time. Um, I think in terms of Canada-Cuban relations, there had been questions in the 60s at a number of points. And while the evidence is not ironclad, there certainly are enough markers to suggest that uh, certainly uh, Quebecois militants were very interested in the Cuban Revolution and Castro. They saw their movement as a decolonizing movement, and they saw Cuba as a, uh, as a uh, you know, uh, an inspiration. And of course, Castro's only trip to Canada by that time was in Montreal in 1959. And he was really welcomed. And years later, he, was, he, he uh, praised the, the Latina dad of Montreal. So there was already some affiliation there. With 1970, just beforehand, by this time, Pierre Trudeau was in office and you be, you're, you're beginning to see a slow warming up of Cuban Canadian relations, which had been relatively cool during the Pearson period, uh, because again, this is an area where there was a lot of different uh, theaters of friction with the U.S. When Trudeau takes over, he begins incrementally to warm to Cuba. He allows for um, the credit sales and things like that, the beginning of development aid. So already there was a sense that, uh, but they all, Trudeau was also a very strong opponent of Quebec nationalism. I think Castro knew that. Castro saw Trudeau as a potential friend of Cuba. And so uh, when the October crisis did hit, uh, he, he helped diplomatically by agreeing to take uh, the, uh, the kidnappers of James Cross, the British Trade Commissioner. And this was a move that was actually initiated by Trudeau, correct? I believe so. I didn't get all into the, the details of that, but Cuba certainly, uh, they did help at a critical time. They agreed to take them. Trudeau was very grateful for that, for him doing that. Uh, Trudeau wrote a letter of thanks to Castro uh, in December 1970, right after that. And that was really uh, the beginning of, of a further warm-up. And Canadian ambassadors, the next Canadian ambassador in Havana, Kenneth Brown, was very strongly then arguing, okay, we have a debt of gratitude to Cuba in this context, and we need to do more in improving relations. And that culminated in the famous three-day visit by Trudeau to Cuba in late January 1976. You've already alluded to the visit, but I'd like you to explain what exactly happened in the visit and what changed as a result of that visit. I think the immediate context of the visit also is act, is actually very very important. I mean, a lot there's a lot of myths about this visit. People believing that this was Trudeau trying to sort of stick it to the Americans and to be, you know, really uh, uh, show Canadian independence. It was Castro who invited him initially in 1974 to go, and at that time, Trudeau even his. Trudeau, of course, had some misgivings about the uh, Department of External Affairs. He thought they were at times too conservative, too cautious, and he a lot of his foreign policy advice came from uh, Professor Ivan Head, who was a professor of law and kind of became his foreign policy personal advisor. Ivan Head told them not to go in 74, and of course, one of the big issues then was Richard Nixon still being in office, and Canada and the U.S. were experiencing some tension then, particularly over Trudeau's um, and, and a vote in Parliament that had criticized the bombing of North Vietnam in 1972. So 
Canadian-U.S. relations were quite chilly then, and uh, they thought with Nixon this would be really a no-go. You know, the Watergate scandal intervenes, and uh, Gerald Ford and Henry Kissinger are Ford as president. Kissinger suggests that maybe with detente happening that it might be time to revisit the relationship with Cuba. So there was an aborted rapprochement that was going on between the U.S. and Cuba at that time. So Ottawa got a sense of this, and they felt it was safe to go. So Trudeau went, and the, pl- and the planning of it began in the summer of 75. It was in 76, though, uh, beginning of 76, just before Trudeau went, that Castro intervened in the Civil War in Angola. Uh, and uh, the Americans were not too happy about that. But at the same time, they did not tell him not to go. They did said, make sure you speak to him about Angola. So Trudeau, in a way, while he went for his own purposes and we gained, you know, we gained, you know, closer formal ties with Cuba as a result, including regular air transit rights and other things, um, there was a sense that that Trudeau was also being a bit of a mouthpiece for the Americans as well, too. There, there was some back-channel back um, communication that happened as a result. And that really was the high watermark of Canadian-Cuban relations in the 70s. Things kind of went downhill a bit after that. Uh, Castro intervened in some other African countries, and then later he began supporting uh, insurgencies in Central America. There was, a, there was an espionage uh, uh, there were some Cuban spies that were expelled in early 77. So uh, that visit was like a peak, but after that, things kind of never never quite recovered to the same level of, you know, over warmth that they had been. Well, one of the changes was that there was a Canada-Cuba agreement to open up travel and tourism change in both countries. And I remember this because in December 1979, I went to Cuba for a vacation, and I must admit I did it out of curiosity to see the revolution for myself as well as to get a little bit of sun in the depth of the Canadian winter. But it did seem to me that there was a, a pretty big change at that time and that Canada's relationship with Cuba uh, had altered because of that air travel and tourism uh, arrangement. And I was wondering if I get your view on that. But at the same time, it seems to me that Cuba became more and more of a sleeper issue in Canada's relations uh, for the last years covered in the book, despite these differences, Canada having tourism and open travel, the U.S. not. So what had changed to make it a sleeper issue? And did this sort of deeper commercial arrangement with Cuba really alter anything? I mean, air travel was always... uh that was a long negotiation there. That was, I think the Cubans saw that as a major vote of Canada's confidence in their relationship. To what extent would they have regular passenger air travel? And it took a long time for that to come into play. What happened that what changed in the seventies was that, uh, um, you had, of course, the, uh, you had the, uh, if you like, the thawing of the worst part of the cold war, the, uh, the whole idea of sort of, you know, subversive travel by people on the left and all that 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 was all starting to fade as you know the vietnam war was ending and as as detente was moving forward so the climate relaxed which allowed for the travel to it to take place again right at the same time as trudeau's trip it was a time they thought it was safe to do so and i think the americans just came to accept that okay canadians are going to want to go to cuba and most want to go because they want sun and you know warmth and it's a an interesting place to go 
ago, not because they had any sort of nefarious or subversive goals and agenda. So yeah, the travel industry grew very, very slowly at first. I mean, it really didn't explode until after the Cold War, the 90s and the 2000s. And that's, of course, the Soviet Union was gone. Cuba really needed foreign money to help prop up their nearly collapsed economy. And uh, so it became a more of a sleeper issue because, again, the Cold War aspect had uh, by that time faded into the background. I mean, there were other issues, of course, in the 90s. You had, of course, the resurgence of the Republican right. You had the Cuban-American lobby becoming a much more powerful force in Congress. You had some very punitive legislation which impacted on Canada extraterritorially. So there was some pushback as well. And there was a fair bit of complaint about Canadian tourists propping up Cuba and not facilitating the Castro regime's downfall. But, you know, those were hiccups and really it was not seen as a big security issue anymore. And even by the mid-70s. Well, John, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and telling us about your research. It's fascinating. Thank you. My guest today was John M. Dirks. His book, A Cooperative Disagreement, Canada-United States Relations and Revolutionary Cuba, 1959-1993, to was published by UBC Press in 2022. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill-Queens University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Greg Marshallden. This interview was recorded on November 14th, 2023. This podcast is supported by our producer, Jessica Schmidt, and the University of Toronto Press journal team.